Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I am your host, Randy Newman, and my conversation partner today is Dr. Paul Gould, Professor of Philosophy of Religion. And Paul, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Randy. It's great to be here with you. Let me tell uh, our listeners a little bit more about you. Paul and I have been friends for a very long time. Um, uh, which is uh, really delightful, but he's also really brilliant. And um, so uh, he has a PhD in philosophy. He is a professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University, both on the undergrad side and the graduate level side. He's actually the, the director of the Master of Arts of Philosophy of Religion program. Paul's had a long ministry in campus ministry and then a number of academic places. He's taught at uh, Trinity International University's uh, Henry Center. And um, so there's many things I could impress you with, but uh, Paul is a, a brilliant philosopher and also has a great heart as an evangelist and wants to connect with people and has written a very, very helpful book, which will be the topic of our conversation today. It's entitled Cultural Apologetics. So the question that matters today for our listeners is, what in the world is cultural apologetics? Okay, well that that is a, a fair question, Randy. Um, let me can, actually let me give you the genesis of the idea for writing the book um, because that'll help explain what it is. Um, but you know, about I don't know seven seven eight years ago, I was teaching at a seminary in Texas, and um, one of the classes that I was asked to teach was actually a class called Cultural Apologetics. And so, like any educator would do, uh, you know, assigned to teach a class, I, I googled the phrase, "What is cultural apologetics?" And, um, you know, I basically found nothing at the time. So seven, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, uh, found very little on, the, you know, answering that question, what is cultural apologetics? So basically uh, that semester, I, I just picked about seven books that were somewhere in the intersection of culture, the gospel and apologetics. And I assigned them to my class. And then I taught it the next year and I swapped out those seven books for seven more. And then I did that like probably two or three more times. Um, when I and I'm happy to say, by about that time, I finally understood what, at least what I thought cultural apologetics was. And so, let me give you the definition I've arrived at after teaching this. Um, first, let me give you the question that, that was driving it, and then I'll give you the answer. The question that was driving uh, my desire to teach that class was really the question: How does the gospel get a fair hearing in our culture today? Um, and then the definition that I've come up with after teaching and thinking and researching all these years is this: cultural apologetics is uh, working to establish the Christian voice, the Christian conscience, and the Christian imagination so that Christianity will be, will be viewed as true and satisfying. In other words, Christianity is not just true to the way the world is, that it's you know, reasonable, but it's also true to the way the world ought to be, that it satisfies all the deep longings of the heart for, for love and justice and, and, and goodness and beauty and all those thing, things as well. So that's, that's a little backstory, and that's kind of the working definition of cultural apologetics. That is really helpful. And, uh, but, and, and like a true philosopher, you packed a lot in there. So um, <laughs> I want to unpack a few things. Um, but but uh, your driving question is so very important. How does the Christian message, get a fair hearing. That's right. um, uh, it certainly seems to me that is that is such a crucial question, because I, I think a lot of Christians, they, they could articulate the gospel if you ask them, all right, so tell me, what is it you believe? And, and they could 
uh, even answer some standard apologetic questions like, why do you believe the Bible? Or, you know, how could you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? But they don't even ever get to those conversations because people right. are just not interested. It's it's not on their radar. It's they it would be like people thinking, gee, what's the atmosphere like on Venus? I just don't care. That's right. uh, and so, how do we get a fair hearing? Um, so, so t- tell us more about what, like. So, what are some starting points? I mean, if if our listeners are uh, committed Christians, they they've read a lot. They they've read a lot of C.S. Lewis. They've read a lot of apologetics. But they're thinking, yeah, this is exactly my struggle. I, I, I don't know how to get this to have a, a fair hearing. Yeah. Well, I think in terms of starting points, um, we, we've got to understand the culture, number one. But even before that, I think it's just important for us to do some sort of in-house you know, critical reflection. And here's the reality, and this is kind of where I begin in the book as well as that Christianity, you know, we suffer from an image problem today in culture. That's actually part of the subtitle here. Um, I, I guess I would put it this way. Um, we've largely lost the Christian voice and culture. Uh, and part of that is because for us as Christians, many of us don't see the relevancy of Jesus to all aspects of life. Um, we're not viewed as, as intellectually competent. Um, Jesus isn't viewed by us often as intellectually virtuous, right? We might give Jesus spiritual authority and, and moral authority in our, in our lives, but we don't always give him intellectual authority. And so as a result, like you said, um, people aren't coming, you know, knocking on the church door to hear from pastors or theologians, you know, the truth about the world. And so we've lost the Christian voice. Um, but beyond that, you know, we're as Christians, many of us are just as fragmented as our non-believing neighbors, right? You know, our, our thinkings and our willings are, are often at cross purposes. Uh, weekly, we read of Christian leaders who disqualify themselves from ministry because of a moral failure. Um, on social media, we're just as bad, if not worse than, you know, everybody else often, um, lacking kindness and charity and, and humility and, and so on. And so what happens, though, is that, uh, you know, traditionally, the church is called to speak light into darkness and to be salt into a, a culture that is decaying. And, and so we, traditionally, we have this prophetic voice, but we're not able to exercise that because we're fragmented. And so we've lost the Christian conscience in our culture. And then that third part there uh, about the Christian imagination as well, um, you know, many of us as Christians, we basically look at the world the same way everyone else does. Uh, we might use words like every day or, or the world is ordinary. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's mundane. But in reality, the world is exactly the opposite. I mean, C.S. Lewis, since we're talking to, to you, Randy, um, you know, the proper word was sacred or holy to help him understand the nature of the giftedness of creation. Um, and so we've, we've become disenchanted is the word that I use. And so um, we need to rebaptize that Christian imagination and really see the world. And I think delight in the world the way Jesus does, or it's just not going to, people aren't going to want to hear our voice. And so if you add all that together, this sort of image problem, you know, um, if you add that together, here's the, here's kind of the bottom line is that for many in our culture today, Christianity is either viewed as implausible or undesirable or both. And so that's, I think, where we need to start is just to kind of do some in-house um, about who, you know, where we are, and, and then we can move from there. Well, uh, you, you use the word disenchanted in your subtitle, Paul. You, your subtitle is Renewing the Christian Voice, Conscience, and Imagination in a Disenchanted World. I think you've spelled, or you've unpacked for us about the voice and the conscience and the imagination. Tell us more about this uh, disenchanted world. What do you mean? And, and how, how do we re-enchant a disenchanted world? 
Yeah. So, um, okay, good. So there was this, uh, and I think you're familiar with Leslie Newbegin too, Randy, but, um, Mm -hmm. one of the books that has made an impact on me just early on and in this kind of stuff was Leslie Newbegin's book, Foolishness to the Greeks. And in that book, he was a missionary sent from Great Britain to, um, India, ministered faithfully among the Hindus for like 40 years, comes back in the early seventies to Great Britain to realize that his own sending country had become, as he would call it, post-Christian. And so he wrote this book trying to wrestle with, how do I have a missionary encounter with my own culture? And on that book, on the first page, he asked what I think is our crucial question in a post-Christian age or in a secular age or in a disenchanted age. And the question is this, he says, what would be involved in a missionary encounter between the whole way of thinking, perceiving, and living that we call modern Western society and the gospel? I think it's a great, that's a great question because Newbegin understood that the gospel is never preached in a vacuum. And, you know, there's these plausibility structures that inform how people receive the gospel. So anyway, in there, he uses three words. What is the dominant way of perceiving, thinking, and living? And disenchantment is the answer to the question, what is the culture's dominant way of perceiving? So in a word, it would be that word disenchantment. And all I mean by that is that we no longer see the world in its proper light. You know, so in reality, the world is gift. It's created. It's holy. It's sacred. It's mysterious. It's beautiful. Um, but we see it as mundane and ordinary. And what happens, though, actually theologians talk about this. There's this idolatrous way of perceiving where we reduce God and the world to the level of human appetite. And then we no longer see it and we no longer see the, the, the fingerprint of God everywhere. And so as a result, um, I like to use the word disenchanted. But uh, another word that people throw out is secular. Um, an important philosopher, Charles Taylor, says that we live in a secular age. And what he means by that is that we live in the age of contested belief, where um, belief in God is not automatic. And even for Christians, um, belief in God is more difficult. And so the last thing I would want to say then, how do we re-enchant the world? Part of sort of the prescriptive or hopeful project of my book was um, uh, thinking that, you know, we can join with each other and with God you know, to, to re-enchant the world. And, and I offer kind of two steps. One is to reawaken longing. And we can talk about that, but these deep-seated longings that we all have for goodness, truth, and beauty, which are just, you know, which find as, as we follow those deep-seated longings, we find its source in Christ. But then secondly, um, that we would return to reality as Christians. And what I mean by that is two things. Number one, that we would see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And then number two, that we would invite others to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does as well. So that's a, a little bit of what I mean by disenchanted and then how we might join with God to re-enchant the world. Wow. Well, you, I, I, I'm, you've said several mouthfuls. Um, and, <laughs> well, so I'm going to just try to slow us down a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I think a, a lot of people, a lot of non-Christians that I know and talk to, they, they don't think secular is necessarily a bad thing. They would think that disenchanted is a bad thing. I mean, secular, I think for a lot of people, uh, and I'm, I'm not questioning your understanding of it or Charles Taylor's definition of it. I, I mean, I think secular is a very negative thing. And secularism, I think, has to land at eventually disenchantment and nihilism, purposelessness, you know, what's the point? Um, but but I just think for a lot of people, we, we probably need to spell out or point out some of that disenchantment and hopelessness and then try to be able to say, but you know, um, 
there is a hope. There are reasons to be enchanted with this world and where it points. But it's not the Pollyanna simplistic of, oh, well, I just have a positive attitude about life. So uh, am I thinking along the, the, the right lines there? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I would want to make um, just a few distinctions. Um, of course, you're, right. you're a philosopher. That's what That's philosophers right. do. They make <laughs> distinctions. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, Charles Taylor, who is a philosopher, he distinguishes three senses of that word secular. Um, and I think you're right. There's, you know, the classic word secular just means, um, you know, the secular is the realm of the, the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker. But the but the sacred is the realm of the priest or something. That was the classic sense of the word. But I think um, most people today, when you say secular, the modern sense of that word is the a-religious realm. You know, it's just the claim that, you know, um, the secular square would be, you know, re- religion is, is scrubbed out of that or something like that. Um, it's kind of on neutral. But then T- Taylor's sense is actually a third and distinct sense of that word. And, and what he means by secular is the age of contested belief, um, that belief in God is not automatic anymore. And so, yeah, so I would just want to make that distinction. You're right. And that's why I, I actually prefer to use the word disenchanted, because I think it gets at some of what, what was lost. Um, but what's so interesting, and this is the second thing I'll say um, with your, your probing question, is um, you know, like, for example, modern intelligentsia, the intelligentsia tell us that, you know, there's nothing magical to the world. There's nothing beyond this world. Everything's, uh, you know, mundane. Uh, as Charles Taylor would say, we live in an imminent frame, right? And we can live our life and find our meaning without any appeal to the transcendent, without any appeal to anything beyond this physical world. But what's so interesting about that is that that's what the intelligentsia tell us, that there's no God, there's no, no meaning, no purpose. But our longings betray us. You know, like, why are we, why are we so fixated on um, superhero movies or, uh, I don't know, Pokemon Go and augmenting our reality or, or, or you know, even the paranormal, the fascination with or, or you know, um, different, I don't know, um, as I say, zombies, but um, like vampires and things, you know, the, the, the kind of things that are beyond this mundane world. It's kind of interesting if you watch the if you look at the things that we watch and the books that we read. Uh, and the things that we're drawn to, um, they kind of betray the long, the, the deep longing of the heart. And of course, as Christians, we know, as Augustine would put it, um, the deepest longing of every human heart is to know God. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And so that's part of what we need to do is, is the world has repressed or suppressed these deep-seated longings. And as cultural apologists, we want to reawaken those and I kind of offer a, a model for how to do that. You know, um, you, you mentioned uh, the phrase plausibility structures, and uh, on a on a sort of a theoretical level, it's uh, we, we want to have ideas that help people consider the idea of Christianity or make it worth considering or plausible, believable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so uh, so how do we do that? What 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 does that sound like in conversations. You know, two people who work in the same office, they're grabbing lunch, uh, socially distanced, of course, wearing masks, of course. But um, so what does that look like? What what is what do you say in a conversation that might build a plausibility structure? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but that's what a podcast is. <laughs> that's right. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, no, that's good. Um, I, I would just say, and I'll do this briefly, but um, and, and I unpack this in detail in the book, but I find Paul's example, um, and I know, Randy, even you, I've heard you talk about this too, but Paul's example in, in Athens on mm-hmm. Mars Hill is so helpful. And, and basically, you see him do three things. So he's engaging a culture unlike his own, 
you know, he's speaking to the Greeks, he's Jewish. And, um, you know, first thing he does, though, is he identifies a, co- a starting point, uh, a common ground. And, and basically for him, it was the, the you know, the unknown, the, un- the idols to the unknown God that he found there. And he basically is identifying the religious impulse behind the idolatry and the Athenians there. But he uses that as a starting point to outflank their thinking and build a case, build a bridge to Jesus and the gospel. And he does it in a, in a brilliant way, if you look at his message there, where he's quoting from their own philosophers uh, and their own poets, so their storytellers, to, to uh, build a bridge to Jesus and the gospel. And he actually, so basically, it's, I love how N.T. Wright summarizes um, Paul's speech. He, he says Paul does three things. And I think this is what I would say in brief. He, number one, affirms what he can affirm in Athenian culture. And I think that's a good model for us, you know, affirm the things that we can affirm in our culture. Uh, number two, though, what Paul does is he, he outflanks their thinking. Um, and he does that in a brilliant way. And I would just point you to the passage in Acts chapter 17, and I unpack it a little in my book. Uh, but he outflanks their thinking, quoting from the philosophers and the poets of his day. And then thirdly, he confronts their rank idolatry. And what he does there is he brings them to the ultimate question. You know, if, if Newbegin's question was the penultimate question, um, you know, how, do, how does the gospel get a fair hearing? What Paul does so well, and I think we need to, to follow his example. Of course, the, the ultimate question is, what do you make of Jesus Christ? And you see how Paul does that in a culture unlike his own, which is similar to our situation. So like Paul, would we understand our Athens? And then like Paul, identify a common ground, a starting point, And from that, build a bridge to Jesus and the gospel. And of course, we, we answer objections along the way as well. We'll return to my conversation in just a moment. Uh, I do want to invite you to take a look at our website, cslewisinstitute.org, and avail yourself to the many resources that we have there. Uh, We have over 40 years worth of articles and recordings and events that can be tremendously helpful. Uh, Check out the uh, different ways that we can help you share your faith or grow deeply in your faith, and uh, consider also uh, supporting the Institute. If you click on the button that says Donate, uh, we would love to have you as a ministry partner. Now let's return to the conversation. I, I do I agree with you. Paul's uh, speech in Athens has so many applicable lessons because our culture today is a lot like Athens, far more than uh, just a few chapters before that. In Acts 13, Paul preaches in a Jewish synagogue, and he uses the scriptures as his starting point. But but that was a very religious audience. Uh, on Mars Hill in Athens, instead, he quotes their poets. So you've already mentioned superhero movies. Um, I, when, when I think about our poets today, I think primarily the, the two biggest poets, I think, are... Um, songwriters and movie script writers and uh, storytellers through movie and television and film. Mm-hmm. So w- what are what are some, in addition to superhero movies, what, what are some of today's poets, either songwriters or storytellers, that you would want to latch on to and say, now look, look at what they're saying. They're saying something good um, uh, in... Uh, um, uh, there is something more, isn't there? We are longing for more. Can you think of some of your favorite uh, poets? Oh, my. Yeah, that's a great question, Randy. Um, you know, what's so interesting about that? I'm going to give you, I don't want, I'm not going to give you a total cop out, but um, I'm going to tell you <laughs> what draws me to, to good story. And, and because like, I, I mean, you know, what popped into my mind as you're talking is like the Harry Potter 
you know, why are so many people mm-hmm. uh, good engaged with like loving Harry Potter stuff? And I think part of the answer is because, I mean, she's a great writer. It's a great story. But the things that are great about that story, I actually think are the gospel parts of the story. And so like Tolkien, he wrote this essay, um, you know, 50 years ago called An Essay on Fairy Story. Mm-hmm. And he said that um, the thing that we're drawn to in fairy tales, but I would just say for any good story, the things that we're drawn to um, are, are parts of the story that point to, as he puts it, an underlying reality that is more real um, than the reality of our primary experience. And that underlying reality was the gospel story. And, and so he's talking about why he writes fantasy, but I think it's for any good story. So whether it's, you know, a Christopher Nolan, uh, you know, exploring metaphysics in Inception or exploring epistemology in uh, Memento, or we'll see what he's going to do in the movie Tenet, you know, um, exploring some big idea. Uh, the things that would draw us to that are, are, are um, parts that connect with some part of the gospel story, whether it's the tragedy of man's sin or the divine comedy of Jesus, you know, God becoming man or uh, the, the unexpected uh, to the tragedy of the, resur- of the crucifixion, which is the resurrection, or the unending, you know, sudden turn, um, you know, that we, the, of the gospel story that we can all have eternal life in Christ. And so, mm. um, yeah, so in terms of specific, I, I, there are certain uh, Christian artists that I'm enjoying and watching. I, I would name Andrew Peterson um, as someone that I think is really um, doing some good work in art and the gospel. Um, I think uh, actually a lot of spoken word poetry these days is really cool um, mm. and doing mm. some cool stuff. Christians are doing cool stuff there. Um, and then back to literature, I think some of my favorite actual writing storytellers today would be, uh, they're a little more difficult to read because they're not sort of flashy, um, but like uh, a Marilyn Robinson uh, and folks like that, I think are, are uh, evoking the divine and the transcendent in a way that's not preachy or crass, uh, but yet they, they stir our hearts to wonder and, and, and to move us toward, you know, this longing for the divine. So anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd have to think more about others. I just like a lot of stuff, so. Well, I, I, I think the challenge, what we want to do is we want to encourage Christians to, to, to read those books and to see those movies and to think Christianly about, right. okay, what, is, what, is the, what question is this, is this movie trying to ask? And what's the answer that it comes up with? And I, I think movies especially, they, they raise the really crucial, important questions. Now, even, even when they come up with what we would say is the wrong answer, it is still a, an amazing springboard for talking to people about the gospel. So, you know, what did you think about what they said there? Um, and, you know, uh, a lot of people are frustrated with Paul's speech in Acts 17 because it, um, he, he doesn't quite land the plane where we want to. I mean, he, he mentions the resurrection, um, but it almost seemed, well, I'm pretty sure that he got interrupted at that point because mm-hmm. the text tells us that, you know, people sneered and some of them said, mm-hmm. well, you know, you're crazy. Um, so he got interrupted. And I think what Paul was willing to do, though, was to raise the questions and let people feel the uneasiness of an unanswered question before actually answering it and spelling out the answer. And I, I think sometimes we're impatient. We, we want to jump really quick to the answer before people have felt the the difficulty of the question. Ooh, that's good. You know, I just recently watched um, 
uh, uh, Hamilton uh, because because uh, uh, Disney Plus was running it for free, and I thought mm-hmm. I'd rather watch it for free than than have to pay a thousand dollars for a ticket. Um, <laughs> so, um, and and it's I mean it's brilliant and it's amazing and it, it's powerful and you're knocked off your seat. I mean it's just you know, yeah. but there's this moment in it when. Um, Hamilton and his wife are dealing with, they talk about the unimaginable, and it was about um, the loss of a child, but also the unimaginableness of trying to put a marriage back together after unfaithfulness. Mm -hmm. And and it's so um, poignant and beautiful, and the words are, can you imagine? They're they're trying to live the unimaginable. Can you imagine? And, and, And the power of music just makes it so, it's like, wow, that's really difficult. Wow, that's really amazing. Oh, I really want it. You you want them somehow to be able to experience the unimaginable or the imaginable. And uh, I, I, I think those are conversations that if we could get into those with people, it can be building plausibility structures. Yeah. Yeah, I think this was one of the um, key insights as I was researching and writing the book was, you know, there's this great uh, philosopher, Peter Kraft, um, who um, wrote a book called Back to Virtue. But in there, he had this chart, which actually was so um, profound in, in pulling some strings together for me. But he just he talked about how God has created each person, each individual with th- uh, three he calls them prophets of the soul, but three parts to what it means to be human. God's given us a mind, reason. Uh, God's given us a conscience, and then God's given us the imagination. So every human being has a reason, a conscience, and imagination. But each of these faculties of the soul, these parts of what it means to be a human, are on a quest for the object of their longing. And he kind of had this chart where, you know, reason is on a quest for truth, and then the conscience longs for goodness. But the imagination, which is so interesting, is on a quest for beauty. And then, of course, and then, oh. he, has, and then he has Christ in the middle. So, you know, Christ is the... the um, the source of all these things, if we put our theology cap on and say, well, what is the source of goodness, truth, and beauty? So as, as we awaken these deep longings for goodness, truth, and beauty, we're actually setting people on a journey that ends with the true object of their longing, which is Christ, the source of beauty. And that's why Lewis was so taken. You know, if you read his biography, Surprised by Joy, he says at age six, he became a votary of the blue flower. And there's a couple mm. of words there. You know, votary means like a follower, a devotee of the blue flower. And what that meant, this was his first experience with beauty. Uh, the blue flower was this mythic symbol in German romance literature that stood for this, um, you know, this, this experience of intense longing that, that, that propels you forward, but is just outside your grasp. And it's ever elusive, but it propels you forward. And so he became this follower of the blue fo- flower, this, this longing for beauty. And God used beauty in his life to ultimately, you know, bring him, um, to, to Christianity, which was the perfect blend of beauty and truth or true myth, as he would put it later. And so, yeah, um, so in apologetics, we're really good. I think we have been really good at giving arguments and showing the reasonableness of Christianity. But I think in our culture today, and this is the importance of the arts, is that Christianity is not just true, true and reasonable. It's good and beautiful. It's desirable as well. And so we've got to show that as well. And that's where art and the aesthetic currency of our age, poetry, storytelling, um, movies, paintings, you know, are so powerful. And of course, we own that as Christians, right? Because God is the giver of beauty and art and story. 
Now, for our listeners, I, I want to go back a little bit. I want to underline uh, something you said there. You said, so we have the mind, the conscience, and the imagination. And the mind uh, points us to truth. Our mm -hmm. conscience points us toward goodness. Our imagination points us toward beauty. Yeah, you, you mentioned Lewis and what he said in Surprise by Dry. I, one of my favorite lines of that book, when he was coming to grips with the fact that he was uh, you know, he he loved mythology and he loved story. But if you asked him objectively what he believed, he believed in, he said, you know, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in any kind of, you know, ultimate big story. And he wrote, um, nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Mm -hmm. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. <laughs> and I think that's what we want to try to do is to point out to people, listen, if you think that life is pointless and meaningless, why are you hoping that your marriage works out? Or why are you hoping to find someone to love? Um, and, and it's that contradiction that's right. that, that we want to help people feel. It's like, wait, wait a minute. No, you don't have to live with that contradiction. Um, so uh, spell out a little bit more for our, our listeners and for me, <laughs> the difference between uh, goodness and beauty. What, what, how, how are those different categories? Yeah, well, I mean, so in philosophy, they're both actually um, sub-disciplines of, of axiology or value theory. And so one, morality has to do with uh, questions of worth and, value and, 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 uh, and things like that, and, and of right and wrong. Mostly when we talk about value, we talk about worth. Um, and then um, beauty, though, has to do with um, questions of aesthetic value. Uh, and so, you know, there's always this question, well, what is beauty? I do think it, there, it is objective. I don't think it's merely in the eye of the beholder. Um, it's something that we behold with the eyes, but I think it's objectively part of the furniture of the world in the same way that moral facts are. There's, there's facts about beauty. Um, and so that's the sort of realm of, of study. Um, but but uh, it's, it's also pleasing to the senses, right? It's, so it's, it's objective, but it also takes, you know, uh, it's pleasing to behold, as Aquinas would put it. And, and I think that, um, you know, God, of course, is a beautiful God. And a lot of theologians, um, you know, tie, when, they, when they try to make sense of what beauty actually is, they oftentimes end up with, well, it's just God. God is beauty, you know, um, the, divi the divine is the most beautiful thing. Um, but I think that God has implanted all over this world beauty. Um, because it's a reminder of who he is, the God that we follow. I'll return to my conversation on questions that matter in just a second. But I, I would like to invite each and every one of you to prayerfully consider becoming a ministry partner with the C.S. Lewis Institute. Our ministry is about discipleship, discipleship of the heart and mind, helping people love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. Um, but as you might guess, a, a ministry of discipleship is not always the most exciting thing that uh, people consider. Um, but we, we believe that your tuning into this podcast probably indicates that you've had very positive experiences and have benefited from the Institute over the years. So please click the button that says donate and become a ministry partner with us. I think that's the aspect of current uh, Christian 
experience that's that's lacking the most yeah. i mean uh if we're if we're pursuing truth christians will say well yes it's true that jesus really did rise from the dead mm -hmm. uh, the bible really is god's revelation to us and if we think about con uh, uh, conscience that points us toward goodness well it's good and it's morally right to stay faithful to your spouse and to not cheat and not lie and not uh, promote injustice. But beauty is a category that we, we're, I, think, I think we're very much afraid of it because it seems so sensual and we're afraid we're going to get caught up in uh, uh, lust or uh, covetousness mm -hmm. um, or, you know, um, well, uh, loving the, the, the creation rather than the creator. Um, but beauty is all around us, physical beauty, animals, trees, flowers, um, uh, beautiful music, beautiful art. And I, I think the, the arts have been used by the devil to lure people away from God. And so I think a lot of Christians were just afraid of it. Uh, it at, at best, it seems like a waste of time. You know, I'm just oh, I'm going to listen to this symphony. Well, it's 45 minutes of time. I'm not doing anything else. I'm just it's not background music. I'm just listening to it. And then when it's over, it's over. And I think, well, how did that really, you know, contribute toward fulfilling the Great Commission? <laughs> yeah. But but it fulfilled it. It 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 contributed in making me a person who loves beauty and who loves the God who created our world to be such that that those kind of sounds would be so moving to me. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I do think that we have a hard time trying to figure out, well, how, 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 do, how does that fit in with, um, you know, making every minute count and uh, those kind of things? Um, again, am I just rambling? Yeah, well, probably, no. but, well, but I'm the host of the podcast and I'm allowed to do that. You're, you're allowed so, to do that. <laughs> well, I would say this, Randy, because you're actually, this is so important. And so maybe if I can just um, add to you what you're rambling with my own ramblings. But, I mean, you know, it is true that the culture ha has held beauty in captive, I think. And the church doesn't know what to do with beauty. We don't have a theology of beauty. And if we incorporate beauty into our church at all, or our church service, it's usually auditory beauty because we, we sing. That's about it, right? Otherwise, we're in multi-purpose rooms, and we're very pragmatic. And so we don't spend money on, you know, I don't know, making the, the, the embodied sanctuary, you know, place of beauty that actually moves us or something like that. But um, I mean, what's so interesting, though, if you look in Scripture, uh, you know, the very first person that you read in Scripture where God, that God fills him with the Holy Spirit, it's in Exodus 31, is actually an artist. Um, oh, you know, it's, good. It's command to, uh, build the te to Moses to build the tabernacle, and God calls by name. You know, Israel's been in captivity for 400 years, but God knows by name the community of artists and calls them by name to, to, um, to, to build the tabernacle. And if you read the account in Exodus 31, it's, it's just the first 11 verses, um, you see that there's artists in the community. You see that um, they're, they're um, commissioned to create works of beauty. In fact, uh, Francis Schaeffer says in this command, to build the tabernacle, you see every form of representational art known to man is given in that command. And, and mm. actually, a lot of the specific uh, instructions for how the tabernacle were to be designed are meant to, to point back to the Garden of Eden and also forward to the future, um, you know, when all things were re renewed again. And, and so there's this question, does God care about beauty? And the, the resounding answer in Scripture is yes. Because it awakens us and it reminds us of home, right? The way things are ought to be. Um, and it gives us hope for the future. And so, so 
Um, one of the most underutilized aspects, I think, in evangelism is art and beauty, um, especially now that we live in an age of video, right, and YouTube and Netflix, um, as opposed to, you know, we are people of the book living in an age of video. And so how do we engage this culture? We've got to be engaging not just ideas, but ideas and image, you know, together, because we're embodied human beings who are moved by aesthetic beauty. Um, anyway, and so, yeah, many people say, uh, you know, that some of the great evangelists of the 21st century will be uh, artists. And I think that there's some truth to that. Mm, I but sure they're, hope so. You know, they're, and... they're helping us see the way the world actually is. Well, Paul, um, uh, we need to kind of wrap this up. Is there anything else that you want to uh, inform our listeners about uh, your book or about the task of cultural apologetics? We could we could talk a whole lot more. I um, well, I, let, I'm going to interrupt my own question and say um, it does seem to me that art and beauty is such a wonderful common ground starting point um, because non-Christians love beauty and Christians love beauty, and so if we can enter into experiences together, reading books and discussing them, or going to an art museum and looking at paintings, or going to a concert and talking about it. Those are those are common ground uh, starting places of God's general revelation of his beauty. I, I think the more we can do that, the better. Um, reading uh, fiction together and talking about what, what, what kind of longings does this book stir. Um, but let me let the last word be for you. Uh, what, anything else you want us, you want our listeners to have in mind about this idea, other than the very obvious, please go buy my book, but I'll tell them that. Uh, you should really read Paul's book because um, it really helps us with these very deep ideas in very, very practical ways. Yeah, you know, thanks, Randy. No, I'm, I'm just thrilled to be on with you and talking about these things. Um, I guess I'll, I, let me just give a plug for if these kinds of things are, are um, of interest to you, Especially, you know, how do we how do we engage with our culture in a thoughtful way, um, where we're showing the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of the gospel? Well, then I would just invite you um, to join us. So we, you had mentioned at the beginning of the program, I, I'm newly moved to Florida, so I just want to give a shout out. Um, there's a pro, a new program that officially begins in the fall of 2021. It's going to be a new master's in philosophy of religion. And it's, we're super excited about the program. Something that's unique about it is that we're, we're really intentionally engaging with what we're calling public philosophy. But it's basically the kinds of ideas that I unpack in this cultural apologetic book. How do we, how do we um, thoughtfully engage with culture and, and love Jesus and our minds in such a way that Christianity is viewed as reasonable and desirable? So I just invite you to, ch- invite you to check it out. We're developing the program as I speak, but Palm Beach Atlantic University, Masters of Arts and Philosophy of Religion, um, officially opens doors uh, fall 2021. So thanks, Randy. Oh, it's wonderful. Thanks for being on. And uh, to our listeners, I, w- I want to say we hope that this podcast really stimulates you a lot to, to pursue the true and the good and the beautiful. Um, may all of our resources at the C.S. Lewis Institute um, uh, be used by God to uh, propel us more to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind.